something that I encounter a very good amount is ambiguity. And then this fear creeps in of, oh my God, I don't know what to do. I haven't seen other people solve this problem. I don't know how to solve it. Uh, and you can either be crippled by that fear or go turn to procrastination and avoid that fear or that sense of overwhelm. Or you can reframe it to being like, wow, how amazing it is that I don't know how to do something and I have people paying me to learn how to do this thing. Like I'm getting paid in my job to learn knowns and to grow the person and to grow my brain power. And so I often have this very proactive reframing that I do with myself when I know that this panic creeping in of, I don't know how to lead this company to be worth the millions of dollars it's valued at. Oh, but how cool is it that I get to learn? And how cool is it that I get to run this experiment to see if, you know, this path forward is the viable one. That reframing is really cool. Where did you pick that up? Welcome to Sass and Scotch. I'm TK, founder at Unstoppable. On this podcast, I talk about the two things I love the most, SaaS businesses and Lagerville and Scotch. On today's episode, we have Val Yarmakova joining us, co-founder and chief product officer of Warmly. We'll be digging into her founder story and the incredible work she's doing at the intersection of SaaS and building products that actually lets you learn more about your customers almost instantly. Val, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's cool to be here. It's so funny. I was doing some research about you and Warmly right before we got on. And this was one of the first times where I was like, I want this. I, I wish I could have this because this is exactly what I'm doing. Uh, and so maybe for the audience, you're at Thanksgiving, you're talking to grandma. How would you explain to grandma what Warmly does? I would tell grandma that uh, Warmly's main thesis, maybe I wouldn't use the word thesis with grandma, is that we can help people build rapport and trust with their professional connections better and faster. And so one of the tools we have, grandma, there's this thing, it's called Zoom. Everyone's doing meetings virtually now. And building rapport with Zoom, it just like, it sucks. It can be really hard because there's a lot of body language cues. It's very challenging to pick up on. uh, And it's hard to... You're not chit-chatting, learn these little details about people that uh, make them human to you. And so we help that make that happen. So I want to dig more into what Warmly does and how business is going, lessons learned. But before that, like you were at Google, you did Y Combinator, you did Techstars. I was reading about, I think it was one of your tweets where literally like five companies have done both Y Combinator and Techstars. It's very rare to do both. And then you did Warmly, like how did, or or rather you did Warmly as part of that, but going from the Google to Warmly, like how'd you come up with the idea? How'd you assemble with the founding team? Like how did it all come together? Let's talk about that first. Yeah, I'll make it a little bit worse. Not only did we do Techstars and YC, but we also did OnDeck and a Sequoia Bootcamp. We're really accelerator junkies. That, that is, I will have a follow-up question on that. I have, I have lots of questions actually on that, but yes, yeah, so let's start with how'd you get into that? How'd you get into Warmly, first of all? We, we have been in the relationship building space since inception in about 2019. And although a product has gone through a few pivots, so we actually initially started off as a mobile app to find people to network with. Think LinkedIn may tinge, 
or of course way better Bumble Biz. And then that wasn't doing so hot. And we pivoted to this thing we called actionable business cards or push pull. You would list out the things you needed help with and the things that others needed for the things you could help others with. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it's still live today. It's free. Anyone can use it. And you can just find people who can help you with a thing. You can help others with things. And then we went into B2B and started helping companies track when their customers change jobs. We are still doing this. At the same time, we had this opportunity to build a really cool app to help make virtual meetings less terrible. Yeah. And so that's another product we're building right now. So, so it's been through going through the pivots, essentially. It, well, it, what it reminded me of, I don't, I don't know if you've ever used Reportive. It was Rahul Vora's prior startup before. Super. Totally. So it reminded me a little bit of Reportive of where you, when you put in someone's email on the side, it would give them a bunch of information about them so you can engage with them in, in, in some sense. But except you go a little bit deeper, you try to find interesting things that they've shared and content they've shared. So you can actually find common ground much quicker, except it's now in Zoom. Is that right? Yeah, it's not just in Zoom. It works in Hangouts. It works in Teams, any virtual platform. Yes, Reportive was acquired by LinkedIn, a very cool company. We've talked to people who told us that when Reportive was killed, because LinkedIn ended up shutting it down, they were crying, metaphorically. And yes, we provide the value that Reportive does, which is where does this person work and what are their details there? But we have a lot more features we're adding on to make this more personal. Like some of the utility ones are like a running late button. So we know when you're five minutes is you have five minutes left of your current meeting before the next one starts, we give you a little button that says, tell everyone you're late. And you click one button and it shoots everybody email, okay, I'm running a little late. We have these things we call asks, uh, similar to this push-pull idea I mentioned earlier, things that you need help with. And so there's a section to put in something you want help with. For example, finding lessons for freestyle wrapping or a recommendation on how to get into pottery. Something It could be something professional as well, but usually people put something more personal about themselves not too deep personally. Yeah. Oh, and we have a feature we're working on. It's called notable quotes. So, you know, if you and I are talking and you just say something super funny, I can document that. It's like me tweeting for you, me translating your spoken word into a tweet. So the rest of the world can see, hey, this person says something super cool. Interesting. That's cool. Yeah. So for you, one of the things that's interesting, I think also is you have this very, insider view across multiple startup boot camps or accelerators they're all great and they all have their pros and cons i'm sure but from your perspective what did you find to be the most interesting differences between the philosophy or the approach let's just say from between a tech stars and a y combinator having been on the inside difference of philosophy the yc philosophy which is strengthened by them seeing many successful companies go through. Uh, and so they have all these data points on the, the kind of signals that companies had early on and then ended up being unicorns. And they really very heavily weigh in on those signals and those signals are king. Because in the past, those signals have had a very strong correlation to very successful big companies. And YC has very set kind of success, what means success to them who are driven or pushed to hit pretty aggressive revenue goals, which is great. Uh, and they really have the strong thesis that if more revenue, then bigger company. Mm. The concern there, they've seen this work. They, they know a lot more than me and they've seen this work. Uh, there is also concern there that you might be optimizing for local maxima. If more revenue next week doesn't mean that this business plan could be a unicorn. 
but I've, I've brought this up to them. They're like, this is possible. This is true. But overall, we've seen that if more revenue is then bigger companies so just shoot for more revenue all the time from week to week. And the tech source philosophy is a lot more, of course they care about revenue, but they're more, they're a little more holistic on does your business model make sense? Are you as a leader growing? And as a person, they do a lot more mental health stuff than like leadership, personal growth things. They actually give you a leadership coach throughout the whole program. And in general, Techstars invests in companies that have more proven business models, typically B2B SaaS companies, whereas YC will take you know, really the bold, crazy shots with some wacky companies that could be super unicorns. How do you think about product-led growth? Like what, what changes about how you approach building the company if you're embracing product-led growth right now? Yeah, if you think about an exec's pain point is I need my team to hit a quota or I need to see some ROI. An end user pain point is team meetings suck or I'm so sick of email. And product-led growth to us is really addressing the end user pain point. It's not building dashboards for executives to see reports. It's building a tool that the end user and the exec could be the end user, but it's not building dashboards for them or statistics. It's just building sheer functionality that really helps them. And they're like, oh shoot, let me tell everybody else about this. Got it. So like having some level of utility and maybe some natural virality in there that helps spread it more than... Yeah, we prioritize features that we know people want to use, not that helps a supervisor be a better supervisor. As you think about this next stage, it sounds like you guys have gone through some pivots and you're feeling really excited about this one. And everyone's doing that Shawshank crawl to like product market fit. For the other founders that are listening, like what's a big piece of one big piece of advice you would give to other founders that helped you navigate this path across pivots and just the path towards this, the driving growth for the business. What's worked really well for you, whether it's in your personal life or just in how you approached your role as founder? Yeah, uh, two thoughts come to mind there. One is a very hypothesis-driven approach to everything. Everything we do is an experiment, right? We observe something of reality, we form a hypothesis around it, and we have some constraints to either refute or prove that hypothesis. And then when we try an idea and it's failing, it doesn't feel emotionally painful. We knew from the beginning, hey, this is an experiment. It could be total garbage and that would be okay. And so at the very beginning, we set ourselves in this mindset of this could be trash and that's okay. We're not losers. If we build something that's trashy, <laughs> we're just going to build the next thing and it will be better next time. And another piece of advice, or something that's worked really well for us is leveraging professional influencers, if you will, like sales influencers or B2B SaaS influencers and doing something that's called a design partner program. So with our core product, which is tracking job changes, we're a small startup. Who's going to trust us? Why would they pay a bunch of dollars to do this thing? And so what we did is we found bigger companies and we said, you know, hey, big company, we know we're a small, we know we are quite small. All of our customers are small. We want to sell to big guys like you we'll give you our product for free in exchange for a bunch of user feedback. And so that is how we've been testing this hypothesis that our, our job tracking product is valid. We found these big companies and we're seeing, would they buy it? Can we even build something that would be useful for them? So I guess the, the takeaway there is experiments. You're not a loser if you built something that sucked <laughs> and uh, test it, test everything with like, in real life, find real people to use the thing 
who will have your back. That's so on point, like, especially your first one. Like I can relate. I think when you're building a company, whether it's working well or not working well, and it goes through ups and downs, your self-worth certainly gets tied to the company and your self-identity is becomes the company. It's, it's not just TK, it's TK from ToutApp, or it's not just Val from Warmly. And therefore it's molded together. It's important to remember where your self-identity and self-worth lies and where the company lies, especially in the early stages, because it's still a baby and still trying to develop. And that doesn't mean you're not like, like that's, it's two separate entities and that's important to remember. Yeah, something that I encounter a very good amount is ambiguity. And then this fear creeps in of, oh my God, I don't know what to do. I haven't seen other people solve this problem. I don't know how to solve it. Uh, and you can either be crippled by that fear or go turn to procrastination and avoid that fear or that sense of overwhelm. Or you can reframe it to being like, wow, how amazing it is that I don't know how to do something. And I have people paying me to learn how to do this thing. Like I'm getting paid in my job to learn knowns and to grow the person and to grow my brain power. And so I often have this very proactive reframing that I do with myself when I notice this panic creeping in of, I don't know how to lead this company to be worth the millions of dollars it's valued at. Oh, but how cool is it that I get to learn? And how cool is it that I get to run this experiment to see if, you know, this path forward is the viable one. That reframing is really cool. Where did you pick that up? Is that something you just developed and came across or was it like a book you read? Like, how'd you come across that? Because I, I feel like that's a great mental trick that every founder should definitely learn to acquire, especially during the tough times. Yeah, a uh, couple answers there. One, I'm really into this concept of this move. I don't know, this movement. It's a school. It's a theory of thought. It's called Conscious Leadership. There's a book. It's amazing. I make my whole company read it and we debrief it. I've also always just been really into psychology and neuroscience. I lead mental health workshops at my company. And I have a leadership coach who's been phenomenal. So actually this reframing of, or we were discussing recently, oh, I'm feeling fear and panic and overwhelm. I'm noticing myself avoiding the fear by going to my emails instead of answering the hard thing. And then we were exploring it and it clicked for me that, oh, I can just reframe this as, damn, this is cool. Investors are paying me to learn. (laughs) Like it's not my own money and I'm getting paid for this. My salary is not big. Our company's not that big yet, but I'm getting paid something. So it's It's, it always boggled my mind that venture capital didn't come with a requirement for mental health training and leadership training. It's my mind. Isn't that crazy? It it is building a company, obviously I'm biased because I'm so into this stuff, but it's so cognitively straining. You are like your sense of self-worth is so impacted because you see yourself fail and you're like, wait. What am I? Who am I? No one's telling me what to do. Here's this path of I'm in an abyss and I'm floating through this open space and I have to somehow build a spaceship, but I'm in free fall. And what the hell am I supposed to do? You really need a tremendous amount of cognitive wherewithal to be happy throughout that process and to not quit and bail out when it gets too hard. So not only should VCs provide mental health stuff, I, I if I was dictator of the world, I would make it start in kindergarten and every kid is going to learn how to address their emotions and communicate them and communicate their emotions to other people. I feel like dictator of the world is a great aspirational title for like later on. <laughs> Maybe that'll be my next title, my next startup. <laughs> for one of the things I think, I don't know if even I know how to answer this and you may not either, but 
in my mind, originally, before I had a leadership coach or even embraced mental health, it was almost always, oh, I'll, I'll probably need to do that later. And later was like this later stage of the company. I went through a series B, we exited, we had, everything got bigger, but I still kept putting it off. And it's great that you've, like, you have a leadership coach, you're thinking about mental health. Let's just talk about the leadership coach. What was the trigger? When did you get it? How early? Let's like, how did you think about that? Psychology and neuroscience stuff since college. Yeah. Uh, like really I've read tens, maybe scores of books. If I can use that number, 20s of books about this topic. And then when I started at Google, they actually had a free therapist. Google just has insane perks. And so I'd go to that therapy and it was very valuable. And then Techstars gives you a leadership coach and for free. And I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. I would have never thought to pay for a leadership coach. And I found tremendous value from that. And so then when we left Techstars, our company raised the money. Now I pay for a leadership coach. Yeah. So valuable, essential, not even valuable, but essential. Yeah. Uh, People are like, oh, I'll do this later. I'll do this later. Like, No, you should have done this 10 years ago. (laughs) If you're ready late, just start now. I I totally agree. And, And one, I wish I did it earlier. And I think founders should do it as early as possible as you can justify the budget or if you can pay for it. Uh, two, I don't, I don't, you probably knew this because you understood this. I, I, always, I didn't know how to evaluate a great leadership coach. Like one of the pitfalls that I, it's almost dumb when I say it out loud, but I'll share it anyway. I was, I would look at the leadership coaches. And I'm like, what the hell do they know? They've never been CEO or they've never done what I'm trying to do. And I didn't understand that there's a whole body of discipline on how to help you on your mind and leadership from a pure functional perspective that you didn't need someone with experience. You needed someone that just focused on that and learned about that, that would teach you. And then you would apply and you would learn a lot quicker. And that, that I know sounds probably sounds obvious to you because you studied this to me. I was like, Oh, I've been evaluating them all wrong. And that's why I took my time to pick one. Yeah, absolutely. I think the process you went through is perfectly natural. Hey, I'm a CEO and a leader of a company. I need someone who did this before to tell me how to do it. And then you realize that, oh, but the cognitive traps I'm falling into are not unique to being a founder or a CEO. Uh, They're actually pretty common amongst people in all sorts of scenarios. Yes. Also, another great thing is uh, like you can get a relationship coach, like literally a marriage counselor for co-founder troubles. Highly recommend it, right? Yeah. A co-foundership is just as worse maybe than a marriage. It's more intense than a marriage. And you can literally just find a, ther- like a marriage therapist to help you guys work through any issues there. Yeah, I, 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 I can totally empathize on that. It's funny because we all know that the failure rate on startups are quite high. And there's been all kinds of studies on, oh, they didn't like the when you look at the research, nine out of 10 top reasons is because of market and go to market. Like I already know that. However, no one's really done the research on like how big did limiting beliefs of a founder play into their failure? If they had a negative relationship with money, then they're probably like, that's probably going to play out in their, them hitting their revenue goals. But no one talks about that. It's crazy to me when you start to understand some of the, or, or how, because you don't know how to communicate and couldn't empathize with your co-founder and the rest of your team or your direct reports that caused less performance. No one touches upon that. And I, I bet that if someone looked at it through that lens, the failure rate reason codes would be wildly different and it'd be a lot more about mindset than execution. hundred percent. One of our VCs says it was very clear that 
they actually say the number one reason companies fall apart is because of co-founder dispute. But right, nobody talks about what the founder was believing, what triggers that they had, what stories that they had that were unconscious biases that they weren't even aware of to fix. Like you mentioned the money thing. If you felt a lot of financial scarcity in your childhood, and then you're going to treat capital, you're going to be a lot more frugal with how you invest things. You're not going to take really big bets because money is a precious resource. Whereas if you grew up with plentiful money, you're going to take really big bets because money's everywhere and it's not a high risk scenario. Uh, but if you're not aware of what, why you're doing what you're doing, that can be dangerous or it could kill a company. Yeah, 100%. That It's so true. And by the way, like you can change that. All of that is perfectly changed. If you grew up in a childhood with not as much money, but then you went through the training of thinking about money differently and how it's created and how it's abundant, you're no longer beholden to that, but not knowing that the blind spot is what really hurts people, I think, more than anything. Yeah, I I grew up in a, in a family of financial scarcity when, when I was a kid. And I just remember when we were first starting the company, I was like really protecting any small assets I had from Google. And Max, one of my co-founders, he was like, wait, but you're going to make more money when you get older. Do you plan to stop working when you're 25? And I'm not 25 anymore, but at the time, I think it was 24. And it clicked me like, oh, shoot, I guess I don't have to, at 24, be financially stable for the rest of my life. Like, I'm still going to keep working and be employed. And it was this mindset shift of, oh, wait, things aren't that scarce. You, you can, you know, generate more income and assets later in your life. Yeah. I, it reminds me, like, I feel the same way. And we can wrap after this one. It's like uh, venture capital, like just entering into that world. I, I was born in Bangladesh and I come from an immigrant family. And so night and day difference and like money and in, in that, growing up in that, and then entering into the venture capital world. And I remember I was talking with one of my investors and I was talking about, oh man, we want to make sure we don't screw this up and we don't lose it and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and they were like, you don't, you need to understand there's $10 trillion in the world that collects negative interest, meaning they don't know what they, they have to store it somewhere. They don't know how to store it. And they have to pay a bank to store that money. They take a small portion of that and deploy that into venture capital so that maybe there's something good that comes out of that, some crazy bet that pays off. And a fraction of that was allocated to you and someone wrote you a $20 million check. And it's, it's like so funny because like we start from zero and go to 20 million, but this person was looking at 10 trillion collecting negative interest and working their way down to a $10 billion fund from a $10 billion fund to a $20 million check that was written. And, and then you start to realize, oh, it just completely reframes how you approach certain things. And I think you need to be prudent about it, but you also need to understand the broader context. And again, it doesn't come with that doesn't come with the instruction manual with your VC check, which is crazy to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to close on that note. Val, this was awesome. Thank you for joining today. I really appreciate your time. We will link to Warmly's website down below in the show notes, warmly.ai, if you want to check it out. Uh, you can connect with Val uh, through LinkedIn or Twitter. We'll link to that down below as well. Uh, if you like this episode, please let us know by tweeting out this episode and mentioning us. There's a click to tweet link in the episode description. And remember, everyone needs a strategy for their life and their business. When you are with us, yours is going to be unstoppable. I'm TK, and I'll see you in the next episode.